Well, after a long summer hiatus and what looks like a long fall hiatus and then a Christmas season, we are here now at the second week of 2023, and I want to bring us back to the Gospel of John. Remember, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, which basically means they similar, they're very similar to each other in, in layout and the, and the information covered. John is very different. And if you remember, I titled my series in the Gospel of John, Conversations with Christ. And the reason for that is because this gospel, par excellence, is a description of Jesus having conversations with individuals, with families, with crowds, with people of all types and walks of life. But I would submit that when you come to John chapter 17, something changes. We are only weeks removed from a four-year event that's not the Olympics called the World Cup. Many of you that followed it, it's probably, they say, the most watched event on television of all events. And of course, if you follow it, you know that the great final was between Argentina and France. A great famous soccer player named Lionel Messi, the great Argentinian soccer player, made history as he was one of the oldest superstars. Some would say he's the GOAT the greatest of all time, to win a World Cup after many heartbreaking exits. And of interest when it came to all this, as I was watching it, was this comment, and it was universal amongst all kinds of commentators around the world, that that particular final game was considered the greatest game of all. And hence the arguments begin. Is it? Was it? Who's the greatest soccer player? Lionel Messi, Ronaldo, Pele, who just passed away in the last weeks. Whether it's sports, politics, fashion, entertainment, music, if you follow anything with pop culture and music, one of the great controversies in the last two weeks was Rolling Stone magazine issued what they said was their top 100 musicians of all time. Canada was grossly offended because Celine Dion was not even included in the list. Even Michael Jackson was like number 84. And it was amazing how many people argued over who's the greatest musician of all time. Even humanity itself, who's the greatest human being? We all like to think about who is the greatest, what is the greatest, what was the greatest. We constantly want to know. And that even comes inside the church. In all of church history, who is or what is the greatest of all time? And okay, I know that you know to say this, and we give the honest Sunday school answer, well, God is or Jesus is. But now let's take it down into the weeds of spiritual disciplines. What about prayer? How are you at praying? Do you pray? If you do, when do you pray? I often want to ask people of this church, people I meet, because so many people talk about prayer. I get asked because I'm a pastor constantly, Pastor, would you say a prayer for me? 
I got multiple text messages and emails and all these types of things. Would you say a prayer? I've been stopped in grocery stores and at the mall and all this. Would you say a prayer? Since we have bought this church, people have wandered in thinking that this is still Mary, Queen of the World, only to discover that it is now Calvary Baptist Church. And when people meet with me, they go, well, I came to see a priest, but you're in front of me. You'll do. Would you say a prayer for me? But I wonder how many of you even understand prayer. On the flip side of this fascination with prayer, I have seen some pretty harsh things expressed about prayer. Just this past week, I've seen on social media blasphemous, questioning, uh, confusing things about prayer and God. People that have lost loved ones unexpectedly, lashing out because of their pain and their hurt. People that have looked at natural disasters or the war in the Ukraine, blaming God or questioning God, and on and on and on it goes. And then there's the general confusion about Jesus himself and prayer. Because Jasmine just read John chapter 17, but many of us remember this thing called the Lord's Prayer. And yet you don't realize that the Lord's Prayer, taken from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 to 9, is actually the model prayer. It's Jesus answering a question of his disciples. The disciples come to him and say, Jesus or Messiah, Rabbi, teach us to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray thusly. He gives them a model for prayer. And I got a zinger for the end of this sermon on that. I would submit that what we have just heard read to us is actually the Lord's prayer. But there are many times and places where we're told that Jesus prayed. Believe it or not, there are no less than 29 places in the New Testament alone, not just in the Gospels, but in Hebrews and others, where we're told that Jesus is praying all the way at the beginning of his ministry and his baptism when we're told that he was baptized and he prayed all the way to the graveside of that Jesus' dear earthly friend Lazarus, where he stood before that and he wept, but he prayed. And then finally, on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But here we are. We find ourselves at John chapter 17. In modern scholarship, it is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. As I've said already, I contend that this is actually the recorded Lord's Prayer. And to be honest, I actually agree with the scholars of the first several centuries when John recorded this, and they actually called this Jesus' Prayer of Consecration. Yes, John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire Bible. And I want to say here and now, I'm going to join with the chorus of people that argue over the goat and the greatest of all time. And what is the greatest of all time? I say John 17 is the greatest prayer of all time. Well, up to that point. And stay with me. Now, I have to be honest. I want to prepare myself and you that I'm going to take time with this chapter. And I want to stop right, right here, right now, and I want you to think about what you've just heard read in John 17. I want to ask you right now, take an inventory of your own spiritual life. How many times have you actually read John 17? Honestly. How many times have you heard sermons on it? 
This was a rebuke and a fascination to me as a person who's almost 51. I have heard very few sermons on John 17. How many or when was the last time you thought deeply about these words that were read? One of the things I did last year prepping for this chapter as it was coming was bought a two-volume set by an old Puritan named Anthony Burgess. He titles his two-volume set, Christ's Prayer Before His Passion. And this is what comes after this prayer. Jesus prays, John 17, this great prayer, only 12 to 18 hours before he would hang on Calvary's tree for you and me. And I have to be honest, this chapter is dripping with theology. There are not less than five requests or petitions. There's declarations. There's intimacy and promises. There's worship and anticipation. There's hope and trust and peace. So yes, I'm going to take my time. I want to set this chapter up, and then I want to move through it slowly and deliberately. Now, I'm not going to be like Anthony Burgess. He preached 145 sermons on this chapter. (laughs) Some of you got scared, didn't you? And I'm also not going to try to cram stuff in. I just can't move on to the next chapter and get through the book of John, after all. I get it. I want to take my time. I get it when preachers preach too long and sermons that try to do too much. I saw a Facebook meme uh, this couple of weeks ago that said, when preachers preach too long and you're, you're wondering and you're getting those cold stares, there's nothing colder than the stare of a nursery worker after a 55-minute sermon. John chapter 17 is the conclusion of the farewell discord that Jesus had with his disciples beginning all the way back in John 13. As I said, it's before he heads, and Luke, Dr. Luke says that he set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem, to Calvary, to go to Golgotha, to the cross. Why? To be cursed for us. He was going there to bear our sin. He was going to sanctify two things, the holiness and the justice of God, not only for us, but also to display his love and his mercy and his grace for us. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us, and he was called Jesus. Why? Because he and he only can and would save his people from our sins. And I contend that this is the greatest prayer ever prayed. Jesus prays to God as Father, but he prays as the Son of God. He prays as fully human and fully God. This prayer is actually unlike any other prayer uttered in human history. Why? Because of who prays it and what is prayed. Now, as you read the words and as Jasmine read them out loud for us, you'll see Jesus prays for the glory of God right out of the gates in verses 1 to 3. He prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then he prays for us, the church, in verses 20 to 26. And why did he do this? Because he prays this prayer in the presence of his disciples. There is a bit of debate about whether he prays it at the end of the upper room discourse and upper room supper, or does he actually stop on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray this with them? But why did he pray it? I believe he prayed it so that his disciples could listen and learn 
learn two things. One, how often have you heard me talk about praying with each other for each other in marriage? There is something powerful about listening to someone pray for you, with you. All too often, we tell each other, I'm praying for you, I'll pray for you. We're praying for you, the church is praying for you. When was the last time you prayed with someone, for someone? Here is Jesus praying with his disciples, for his disciples. Think about what you've read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How often it says, and Jesus set himself apart and went up into the mountain and prayed and often sent the disciples on before him. How often, I wonder, did the disciples hear Jesus pray? But this is one of the few times that the beloved disciple John says, I heard Jesus pray and here's what he prayed and he prayed for me. So I believe that's one of the reasons But I also believe he prays it so they can learn. Have you ever thought about how many times in the book of Acts it tells us that the disciples, as they were facing persecution and setback, setback and hardship, as they were facing transitions, and it would say that they remembered what the Lord had said to them. How many times do you think in their life had they remembered what Jesus taught them or prayed? And yet, look again at verse 20. Did you catch it when Jasmine prayed it? I do not ask for these only, Jesus says in prayer, but also for those who believe in me through their word. This is Jesus transitioning. I'm not just praying for my disciples. I'm praying for everyone who will believe from their act of obedience. Guess what? That's you and me if we trust Jesus. So the song that says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind, I understand the sentiment and the sentimentality, but actually the truth is, when he was with his disciples praying, I was on his mind, and so were you. I want you to realize that something right here and right now, stop and think about your life. What has happened in your life? since you've been born, in the last weeks, months, years. I want you to think about what your life is like right now. I want you to think about what does 2023 hold for me, for you, for us, both the known and the unknown. And I want to ask you, do you realize, do I realize, do we realize what John chapter 17, what this prayer means and does? Church, this glorious, wonderful chapter of God's holy word allows you and I to actually eavesdrop. We get to listen in on Jesus as he prays. And we get to see how the Trinity works in love and unity. In Jesus, in this prayer, he consecrates himself. He consecrates his disciples and he consecrates you and I. It's a prayer of glory and consecration. Jesus is so powerful and almighty that he can actually pray, if you read it carefully, preemptively. He says to God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son, I give those whom you gave me to you. He hasn't died on the cross yet. 
Oh God, my Father, he says, this is life more abundantly. He's talking about here, Jesus actually presents his church, the bride, without spot or wrinkle, and most of us haven't been called yet. And I believe that when you and I listen to, meditate, trust, respond to, worship, participate in this living relationship, here's what happens. Are you ready for this? We, the church, both Calvary Baptist and downtown, Northern Cross, Kilbride Community Church, and all churches in the city, the church Catholic, which is around the world, when we, the church, both locally and universally of the living God, when we give him glory, when we trust him, we will then trust his protection and his plan for our lives. And when you do that, you'll share in his joy. And then, are you ready for this? This is why Mile One Mission exists. When you and I get this prayer, you and I, the church, the body of Christ, we will then raise up our arms and we actually learn that we are the ones who God chooses to facilitate his message to this city and her neighborhoods, this province and her people, this country and her people. So for just a few moments, and already you can see how passionate I am about this, Few things both scare me and excite me more than John chapter 17. I want to try in my feeble humanity to break down what this chapter is all about. I want to set it up a a careful, thoughtful, learning walk through this amazing prayer. And I just want to give you some big ideas of what this prayer is. All right, number one, I want you to realize this is a prayer of sanctification. If you're taking notes, write it down. This is a prayer of sanctification. If you listen to Jasmine Reed, right? When Jesus had spoken these words, that's what he said in chapter 13 to the end of 16. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. If you notice, even that's the opposite posture that we often take, isn't it? How often have you heard, let us bow our heads and close our eyes? Have you ever wondered why? Remember what God told Moses? No one has seen God and lived. Jesus can lift his eyes to heaven. He can look at God the Father because he is God. He can can be bold and brave and powerful in ways that you and I could never be. And he lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. And we'll notice and unpack this when we get into verses 1 to 4. How often in John, from John chapter 2 up to John chapter 16, he has said one thing over and over and over and over again. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. He told his mother, my hour has not come. He told the disciples, my hour has not come. He told the Pharisees, my hour has not come. He told the false converts, my hour has not come. But here he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Have you seen such unity of purpose and unity of nature? He discovers, when you look here, you'll discover the love of God. In this chapter, you'll discover God's providence over death. You'll see election and what it means for us to be the elect of God. Here you see the deity of Christ. In John 17, we actually see and hear Jesus, I believe, in his greatest display as our mediator and our teacher. We discover the priest and king, Jesus. 
We discover how he is the one who gives us our union, not only with him, but then we're given knowledge of God as father. We are told what eternal life actually is. And so it's much more than simply living forever. Eternal life is so much, even, so much more than even just going to heaven. We are actually taught here in this chapter what heaven is and what makes heaven heaven at all. And we will learn about subjects, deep subjects like justification, what it means to be declared just before God, sanctification, what it means, the process. Every song that our praise team sang with you and invited you to sing was actually an anthem of sanctification. He's still working on me. And why can you and I sing it? And why can you and I wrestle with the fact that we're not perfect? Because Jesus Christ is, and he prays. And I would submit, he's still praying. We'll learn about words like obedience and what holiness is. We see things like faith and prayer and perseverance and worship. We'll actually, Jesus prays out what true Christian unity is in the gospel and ministry. And of course, how could one miss the glory of God? But this is Jesus' final official words with his disciples. He'll pray not only with them, but before them. And how often do we hear Jesus going up into that mountain? But not this time. Notice in John 17, this time it's personal. And I, I really am burdened because too many of you, as I look into your faces, from the youngest of you to the oldest, from those of you that are sitting here and think you've got life put together, to those of you that are sitting here and feel like life is just falling apart. Too many of you serve and think of God in terms of a deity, in terms of someone with ultimate cosmic power who's out there, but few of you enjoy the actual personal intimacy of God as Father. And John 17 gives us, John 17 is a prayer that basically by its essence is the essence of relationship. Anthony Burgess says, if the, dying if the words of a dying man are much to be regarded, how much more are the words of a dying Savior? So John 17 is the consecration prayer of our mediator. He says that at the end of it, I consecrate myself to you. But it's not just a consecration prayer of Jesus it's the consecration prayer of Jesus as our mediator. As those of you here today who claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, this chapter, John 17, is the magnum opus of Christ for us. But let me ask you all something here this morning, me included. How often do we turn to this chapter when we're discouraged, when we're anxious, when we're angry? How often do you turn to John 17 when you're hurt or you're afraid or you're bewildered or you're let down or you're ashamed or you feel like a failure or you're tired or you're weary of well-doing? John 17 is a special kind of prayer. Why? Because it's the prayer of a special kind of person. And it's for something, to give eternal life. 
Look at those opening words again. Father, the hour has come since you have given him authority over all flesh to what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And then he explains it. This is eternal life. What is it? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. It's not your heaven real estate card. It's not your get out of hell card. It's not your I get to live forever card. You're not going to do your lotto 649 happy dance because you get to live forever in heaven. No, the eternal life is to know God as Father, Jesus as Savior, the Spirit as your guarantee so you don't have to fear anything or anyone, including yourself. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, if you offered me heaven without Christ, I wouldn't want it. And if you had offered me hell with him, I would want to go there. The problem we have with the gospel is we make it cheap. And so this is a prayer of consecration. This is the prayer of a mediator, which means it's different from all other prayers. And I want you to separate yourself from this. Every one of us in here can pray for each other, and the Bible commands us to pray for each other. But again, as Burgess rightly observes, our prayers are the bare, mere men and women praying bare, mere prayers. Why? Because our prayers in and of themselves have no merit and no mediation. Which, by the way, is why we pray in Jesus' name. That's not a liturgical tag-on at the end of your prayer. When you and I pray, we finish in Jesus' name because our prayers have no meaning except unless they are delivered in Jesus' name because he is our mediator. Our supplications are simply coming to Christ and asking him to do what only he can do. Give us access to God the Father as Father. See, the prayers of Jesus are powerful because he is both God and man. But secondly, this is a prayer of worship. This is a prayer of worship. Look at verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know you. Watch what he says. The only true God. That's a statement of worship. That's a statement of adoration. He says it again in verse 25. He says, oh, righteous Father, God the Son celebrates the Trinity. These are cries of worship and adoration. They are declarations of trust and love. One of our greatest biblical examples of this is David. How often does David say worshipful prayers? Even the most commonly recited psalm in all the world, the Lord is my shepherd. That is a declaration of worship. The Lord is my shepherd. I worship the Lord who is my shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want. This is a prayer of worship. Is it any wonder that David would say in Psalm 111, great is thy faithfulness. Thirdly, though, this is a prayer of mission. This is a prayer of mission, and I don't want you to miss this. Look at verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, watch this, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus says, I had a mission, and I've accomplished the mission. And I love it because he says, I've accomplished the mission, hasn't died on the cross yet. Because for Jesus to say it, it is 
You know, was the old southern pastor that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But the reality is, if God says it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. But this is a prayer of mission. He accomplished the mission, and then in verses 6 to 19, he passes the mission on to his disciples. And then in verse 20 to 26, he passes the mission on to us. In essence, Jesus says in verse 4, I have done the hard work. And because of this prayer, he now says to every man and woman who names the name of Christ, you go and harvest. You go and harvest. This is why Paul says what he does. He said, some have planted and some have watered. But what does he say? But only God gives the increase. How can he say that? Because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus prayed. In John 10, 18, Jesus said he came as a servant of God under the law. He came as a mediator to be a mediator, and he is still a mediator today. And Jesus began his prayer by anticipating his accomplishing his mission. He opens with, I have been obedient. <laughs> have you ever thought about what it is you're going to say and feel when you stand before God? So many of us love to think like uh, that group that's saying, uh, I can only imagine. Will I stand before you? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Will I bow? What am I going to do? I can only imagine. Jesus is the one, the only one who can pray, I have obeyed perfectly. I can't wait to see Jesus. I want to be like Fanny Crosby, who when she wrote, I can't wait to see my Savior face to face. And she wrote that as someone who was blind and deaf. But you know what? No matter what I do, I am overwhelmed with the thought of one day standing before God and realizing, oh, I wasn't perfect. There's so much I could have done. There's so much I didn't do. There's so many things I could have done, should have done. But Jesus, Jesus prays before his disciples, with his disciples, and he says to God, I have been obedient. And so you know what? When you and I pray, we pray with that as our umbrella of security. So when I stand before God, it's like Alistair Begg who made that very famous viral video that's gone around YouTube. Why are you here? Who gives you the right to let, let you in? And he says, because the man on the middle cross said so. So when I stand before God, I can't wait to see my Savior face to face, but I will not worry about saying, I've obeyed because I can't say it. What I will say, he obeyed for me. Do you see the intimacy? Do you see how personal that makes it? And do you see what a mission that gives us? Again, Burgess writes, Christ satisfied God as a just judge. How did he do it? By his blood and his sanctification. He undertook that the justice of God should never fall upon us to punish us. And this is the very meaning of a loving God. 
This wasn't because Jesus came because God was upset and Jesus said, well, I better go make God happy again. No, it was a loving God who sent a loving Savior empowered by a loving Spirit to offer us a holy and merciful and gracious gospel. John 17 is the explanation of John 3, 16 to 19. For God so loved the world... Even though his holiness had been impinged upon, his justice had been violated, he loved us so much, he sent his son to live and die for us. And so we don't live as condemned people. When you know Jesus, when you trust Jesus, when you trust this prayer, you can head out into that world no matter what your scars are, no matter what your resume says or doesn't say. Again, I'll, I'll pick on the Marvel mo- uh, movies because I, I, love, I, I feel like the world can't help itself but mimic the gospel. Remember Black Widow and Hawkeye? In those Marvel movies, they always talk about, I got a lot of blood in my ledger. And they work hard and they risk their life because they're trying to wash the blood out of their ledger. No, Jesus says, this prayer says, take your ledger and bring it to Jesus because he washes it white as snow with his blood. So you know, for a Christian, I can say, there's a lot of blood in my, my ledger. Yeah, Jesus' blood, which means I'm pure, even though I have a resume pages long of hypocrisy, inconsistency, failure, broken promises. And this is why this is so important. Joel Beakey says, understanding that Christ's mission was to reconcile sinners to God profoundly shapes how we view his prayer and its application to ourselves. Because once you see the mission, then you'll notice that this is also a prayer of confidence. This is a prayer of confidence. Notice as well in this prayer the confidence of Christ. He says, the hour has not yet come. Glorify your son and he may glorify you. In verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Everything is confident. It is courageous. There's no doubt in this prayer. He knows that what he is doing, he knows what God is doing, he knows what will happen. He speaks like one who amazed the disciples and the listening audience in the Sermon on the Mount because he prays like he spoke as the one with authority. He knows he is going to the Father. He knows his hour has come. He knows all will be accomplished. Jesus is about to face the greatest trial, humanly and godly speaking. He will be, in the next 12 to 16 hours, denied, betrayed, accused, lied about, beaten, laughed at, spit upon, abused, used, crucified, scorned. And yet, remember the words of Hebrews 12? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured a cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Jesus is confident in himself. And my friends, it's not that prideful, cocky, arrogant pride and confidence that we all know too much of in our world. Rather, this was the quiet assurance. This was God saying, I know what I can do. I know why I can. And I know what this will accomplish. It will get God glory and will fulfill his plan. And so, my friends, Jesus prays here like he did in John 11 for us. Do you remember what he prayed before that grave? He said, oh God, I pray to you now, not because I need to pray to you. I pray for those who are listening. 
Jesus doesn't need to know that God listens. If he speaks, he's God. He prays for our benefit. It's a prayer of confidence. He prays with confidence because once he dies and rises again, he'll be with the Father. He prays with confidence because he knows the Holy Spirit will come. John chapter 7, verse 39, and John chapter 14, he prays with confidence because when he knows he goes to the Father, the powerful gifts of God will come to us and sanctify us and use us. He knows that he can pray that he'll go to the Father because then he'll prepare a place for us. He knows he can pray with confidence that he comes to the Father because he'll be our eternal advocate. In 1 John chapter 2, he ever lives to make intercession for us. How are you here this morning? Do you feel lonely? Are you scared, angry? Do you feel a little bit hung up in the doldrums of already the depression of the beginning of a new year with inflation and everything else? How would it change the way you see your life if you thought every day, Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for us. Friends, listen to me now. When you and I are not mindful of ourselves, when we don't think we just react to life, which is what we're so often doing, Jesus is then, in that moment, when you are your weakest, when you are your most selfish, when you are your most self-centered, he's actually commending himself to us, to God, for us the Father. And this is why the hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus. And we often focus on the parts that we do in that hymn. But remember these words? Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, precious Savior still our refuge? Quite frankly, whether you take it to him or not, he's still your friend. He can leave so he can come back. Jesus doesn't leave us. He goes to prepare a place for us. And why does he do it? So he can come back and bring us to himself and to God. So in in, in full disclosure, John chapter 17, only Jesus could pray it. Jesus has actually fulfilled it, and God has and is still answering it. And that's why Anthony Burgess says, the greatness of one's sin cannot compare to the greatness of Christ's suffering. So my question to you this morning as I finish up is how are you and I going to respond to this prayer? I want you to know that because Jesus prayed John 17, then you can trust him with your life, with your sin, with your hurts and your scars. Because Jesus prayed, we can rest. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to be worthful. You can come and actually feel worthless and rest because Jesus gives you your value. Because Jesus prayed, we can have joy. And it doesn't mean that our circumstances are going to change. What makes Ukrainian Christians gather on old Christmas Day in a bomb-blown-out, shot-up shelter of a church and hold hands and sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? It was a Matt Chandler who said Paul must have just been aggravating to everybody. 
You beat him and put him in stocks, and at midnight he was praising God and praying. He was with Lydia, the seller of purple, and he had all kinds of money and, and bankroll, and all he could think about is, now what can we do for Jesus? Is it any wonder that he would say to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. And guys and gals, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, because Jesus prayed, we can pray. And you might think, why or how can I pray? Well, remember this, our prayers don't serve the same purpose of Jesus' prayers. We don't pray for merit or mediation. No, we pray to worship God and find help in our time of need. That's why Hebrews 4 says it what it does. We pray to humble ourselves and admit, I can't. We pray so we can commune and cry and plead. We don't pray to change God's mind. We don't pray to alter his will. Matthew 7 is still correct, though. Ask and you will have. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Why? Because God does not give mercy simply because we ask for it. God stimulates us to pray and ask for the mercy that he's already preordained and intended to give to us. So we pray mostly for the success of God's will via God's word. And that's why Matthew 6 should make more sense to you now. As a model of prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray to acknowledge God as Father, as the only one who can help us and does. And by the way, let me say this. If you've memorized the Lord's Prayer and you pray the Lord's Prayer and you think that because you've memorized it and you recite it, that's no more worth to you than if you ever memorized the instructions of your Fitbit. Too many of you recite the Lord's Prayer like it's a lucky rabbit's foot. Rather, get into John 17 and hear Jesus pray for you. And rather, let us pray how God taught us to pray in Matthew 6. And finally, Eric Reed helps us out, and I want to end with this. Why do I think this prayer is so significant? How do I want to set this up? It's like this. When a deep belief in the sovereignty of God, it's going to protect your heart and your mind from 10,000 different worries. So some of you here this morning are saying, Steve, you don't understand. I'm an accident. No, you're not. You're not random chance as a result of parents' reproduction. God determined to create you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Before God ever said, let there be light, he knew about you. You are not an accident. Number two, for those of you here this morning that think your life has no meaning or purpose, this chapter says, no, it does. Not only did God create you specific, specifically, but also on purpose. You are designed particularly from features and personalities with temperament and giftings and location and time. It's what David said in Psalm 139. In my mother's womb, you knew me. Some of you here this morning and you're tempted to think, Steve, it's too late. I've already missed God's will for my life. <laughs> No, John 17 says, you can make your plans, but the Lord determines your steps. That's Proverbs 16, 9. And those steps are aligned for his purpose. We are his workmanship, created in his image for good works. Your life has meaning. Also, some of you are here and going, Steve, I'm going to lose God's grace because you don't know how I've messed up. 
And my answer to you is John 17, because those in Christ Jesus have assurance to the enduring to the end because he keeps us. I will give them eternal life. And some of you think I'm too far beyond God's redemption. And John 17 says, nobody, because all that the Father has given me, he has. Some of you here and some of you Christians think, Steve, the world is just too dark. Evil prevails. And yet, Revelation 21 says one day, God will end all suffering and sin and death and darkness. And the darkness of the world will never overcome the light. And some of you are thinking that your suffering or your pain is too much or it's pointless. And yet, John 17 reminds us that Jesus uses suffering, even his suffering on a cross, to grow our character. Remember Joseph's story? What you meant for evil, God intended for good. Some of you think that the earth is going to drift off its orbit, that climate change and all these things is going to overtake us. And this isn't a political statement. It's a reminder that God is over the fate of the planet. As R.C. Sproul would say, there is not one maverick molecule on God's planet earth. And some of you think, I'm going to die, or you're afraid of death, or you think you're going to die before you finish your race. And yet, you can't die until God says so. And I think many of us are guilty of this one. We think our prayers don't matter. And yet, Jesus knows everything you need before you even ask. Yet, we're instructed to pray. And so, why is prayer like this so, so important? Because it costs us something to be a true Christian. And let that never be begotten. To be a mere nominal Christian, J.C. Rawls says, and to go to church is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice... And to follow him and believe in him and confess him requires much self-denial. Come to the altar and hear Christ pray for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I beg of you. that my friends, my family, my church brothers and sisters will have heard you speak to them and not me. And God, something I should pray more when I preach is, Lord, please help me to apply what I have just said to my own life. If there's any man or woman here and they don't know you or they don't feel worthy or they're scared or afraid, May the singing of this song and the power of your read and preached word assure them and convict them and motivate them to cry out, Lord, I need you. And may we as a church realize that this prayer of consecration and worship and mission and confidence means we can pray a living Father through a gracious Savior by a powerful Spirit. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.